Hi, Steve here. Thanks for dropping by. These are the kind of stories I love. This is going to be a collection of tales that I think you'll enjoy. I want to talk with you first about William Dampier. William was born in 1651 in the town of East Coker, Somerset, in the UK. Now, very few people have ever heard of this guy, in spite of the fact that he was the first Englishman to explore what's now Australia, and the first person to circumnavigate the globe not once, not twice, but three times during his life. He's widely recognized by academic historians, anyway, as a great naturalist, and in fact the first naturalist who dedicated himself completely to Australia. He was held in pretty high esteem by such people as Hooke and Nelson and Darwin and Humboldt, and he's also known as the guy who rescued Alexander Selkirk after he was shipwrecked on a remote island. Selkirk was the inspiration for Daniel Defoe's book, Robinson Crusoe. Interesting guy, right? Well, actually, there's a lot more to his story, and it gets even more interesting. Dampier joined the Navy, but he had to leave when a series of serious illnesses caused him to be bedridden for long periods of time. Once he finally recovered, he did a series of jobs until 1679 when he signed on as a crew member with Bartholomew Sharp, a buccaneer who ran regular raids against the Spanish Armada along the coast of what's now Mexico. This led to his first global circumnavigation, followed by more privateering, today it's what we call piracy, along the coast of Virginia with John Cook. In the early 1680s, Dampier changed flags again, this time working for a guy named Charles Swan. Together, they set out across the Pacific to raid Guam and the Philippines, along with parts of China, the Spice Islands, and New Holland, what we now call Australia. In 1688, while beached in New Holland for ship repairs, Dampier began to take notes about the animals and plants that he found there, as well as observations about the indigenous people that he found living in the area. He went back to England in 1691, broke, but with these hugely extensive journals in hand. And shortly after his arrival, he began to write A New Voyage Round the World, a detailed account of his journeys. Now, the book was published in 1697, and it went viral, or as close to going viral as it was possible to do in 1697. And because of its success, it caught the attention of the British Admiralty. As a result, Dampier was made commander of a 26-gun ship, the Roebuck, and was directed to explore eastern Australia, New Holland at the time. So, off he went, leaving England in January of 1699, but arriving too late in the season to make his way around the stormy Cape of Good Hope. Instead, he took the Dutch Indies route, and he landed on the west side of the continent, where he immediately set about producing the first detailed and beautifully illustrated record of Australian wildlife. He continued from there to other points along the Australian coast before sailing for Indonesia and New Guinea, collecting samples along the way and taking detailed notes at each stop. Now, Dampier made two more circumnavigations of the planet during his lifetime, although there were rocky moments in between. When he came back from the Roebuck expedition, during which he lost the ship thanks to an inept carpenter and he had to be rescued, he was hauled before an admiralty court and court-martialed for cruelty after kicking his first officer off the ship and having him jailed in Brazil. Now, not about to let something as silly as a court-martial get in the way of his life, Dampier published a second book, A Voyage to New Holland. 
and then signed on as the commander of the St. George in 1701 to fight in the War of the Spanish Succession. Along the way, he once again went around the earth, capturing Spanish ships here and there. He returned to England at the end of 1707, and in 1709 was once again engaged to serve as sailing master aboard the Duke, commanded by Woods Rogers. The expedition, although let's call it what it was, a raiding party, was really successful, yielding about $20 million of plunder in current value. But, as luck would have it, Dampier died before he collected his share. But where, when, and how remain a mystery. I mean, hey, why can't you be a naturalist and a pirate? And that story brings me to my next one. Sorry, I came across these little factoids and I just have to run them to ground. The only thing that these two stories have in common, in fact, if I can say that about all the stories in this episode, it's that they have nothing in common. But so be it. Look, I'll be the first to admit it. Only a romance philologist, look it up, IR1, and a trained biologist, IR1 of those two, who works in the highly technical field of telecommunications, media, and IT, and whose greatest passions are reading, writing, audio recording, and photography, could really appreciate this next story. I was reading a book of classic poetry the other day. Don't ask. My tastes tend to run more often than not to thrillers, but whatever the case, I became curious about the origins of the Cupid myth. You know, the little round flying cherub dude who shoots arrows into people's hearts, causing them to fall instantly in love with whoever they happen to be with at that moment. Anyway, in classic mythology, Cupid is known as the god of desire, erotic love, attraction, and affection, and is often said to be the son of the love goddess Venus. In Latin, he is amor. In Greek, eros. Interesting stuff to a philologist, amorous and erotic. But the more I read, the more I find out that the Cupid story really kind of appeals to me as a biologist. And here's why. Down at the bottom of the definition, I saw a line that said, see also gypsobelum. So I did. And here's what I learned. Cupid was originally a mollusk, more specifically, a snail. Well, it turns out that some sexually mature land snails and slugs develop these things in their bodies called gypsobili, which are sharp calcium darts. Lighthearted biologists call them love darts. They can be more than an inch long. When two snails decide to engage in slimy foreplay, they crawl around on each other for a rather long time, up to six hours in some species. That is serious foreplay. Now, that, that could be six play for all I know. Anyway, the mutual stimulation, are you getting turned on yet, causes pressure to build up in the blood sinus that surrounds the love dart. And then, without warning, they each fire one or more of these love darts into their partner. Now, there's no specific target for this stabbing act. It penetrates wherever it penetrates. But what it also does is it improves the chance of successful copulation because the mucus that covers the dart contains a hormone that improves sperm survival. Sometimes the stabbing is so forceful that the dart actually protrudes through the other side of the partner. Okay, back to my philology or word origins interest. In German, these love darts are called Liebesfeilen, or love arrows. In Czech, they are Schiplaski, the arrow of love. Who knew? 
but the idea of a slimy snail crawling around shooting people with love darts just doesn't do it for me. But let me ask you this. Would you agree that we need adventurous people to discover such things as love darts or to be both a biologist and a pirate? Well, we do. Electra Havemeyer-Webb. She founded the Shelburne Museum not far from where I live here in Vermont. She founded it in 1947. Like her parents, Electra became a collector, focusing on Americana, but she went one step further. She also collected the buildings in which she would ultimately display her collection. She purchased 20 structures from all over New England and had them carefully relocated to the museum grounds. Houses, barns, a meeting house, a one-room schoolhouse, a lighthouse, a jail, a general store, a covered bridge, and the 220-foot steamboat Ticonderoga for which she had to build a railroad line to get it from the lake to its final resting place at the museum. That railroad line is now a walking trail. So as we walk around the museum grounds, Sabina and I go there quite often just to just to see the place, going from building to building and enjoying what each of them had to offer. I couldn't help but think of the role of museums in the world today. As we walk past the steamship, I marvel at what an incredible collection of devices this thing was. The lighthouse made me think of its role in commerce, which in turn made me think about the process of signaling its primary role. We walked across a covered bridge and again, I stood and stared in admiration at the intricate trusses that support its weight and thought about the development of bridge technology, ultimately incorporating things like king and queen posts and burr, lattice, and brown trusses, all variations on the complex engineering required to build a safe and functional span. Museums are places for free-range learning, which is, of course, the very best kind. One day, while visiting a small-town museum in Wisconsin, I happened across a brochure from something called an acclimatization society. In 1854, Isidore Geoffrey St. Hilaire founded La Société Zoologique d'Acclimatation in Paris. This acclimatization society was created with one single goal in mind, to enrich the biological diversity of a region by introducing plants and animals from all corners of the world species that frankly just didn't belong there. The concept spread pretty quickly, with societies popping up in the Americas, Australia, parts of Asia, and many colonial outposts. For the most part, these societies' efforts were pretty innocent. I mean, many of them just wanted to control pests. Others wanted to introduce game animals or crops that would prove to be economically good. Ecologists today, of course, are horrified by this idea. Now, There's a sad aspect to these societies that goes well beyond the fact that they were deliberately introducing foreign and often invasive species. Most of them were started because their founders believed that the indigenous flora and fauna were somehow inferior, deficient, or biologically impoverished in some way. Predictably, some of those biological imports led to ecological disasters, such as when rabbits were introduced in Australia or when possums were brought to New Zealand. Both species decimated the local environment, sending ecosystems into sharp decline. 
In New York City, the American Society introduced Java sparrows, house sparrows, skylarks, chaffinches, blackbirds, European starlings, Japanese finches, pheasants, and European robins to the skies of North America over a period of 20 years, often to the detriment of local bird species and a lot of insects. The starlings alone illustrate the profound magnitude of their actions. From a couple of hundred birds released into the wild in the late 1800s, specifically in New York's Central Park, today there are more than 200 million of them, and they're all over the United States. Okay, shifting gears. Every community, especially small communities, has at least one of those people who are actively involved in every single thing that is in one way or another community-oriented. In our town of Williston, Vermont, that person is Bill Skiff. Bill's the Grand Marshal at the annual 4th of July parade. He's the judge at the annual 4th of July frog jumping contest. He's a deacon in one of the churches. And he writes an article every month in the local newspaper about what life was like in rural Vermont when he was a young man. As near as I can tell, he's a standing and active member of every committee, past and present, that has ever existed in Williston, and he's active on some committees that haven't even been formed yet. He's the town greeter, historian, justice of the peace, teacher, administrator, and one of the kindest human beings I've ever had the pleasure to know. And he's just an interesting guy. He's a tremendous storyteller. In fact, I've spent hours just listening to him talk. Not long ago, Bill called and asked for my help with a personal project. While digging through a box of family history a few months before, he ran across a collection of notebooks that belonged to his Uncle Cecil. It seems that Uncle Cecil, who was a baker, was stationed in France during the final year of World War I. Cecil was also an amateur artist, and during his time overseas, he kept copious notes about his experiences there. Equally important, he took the time to sketch the things he saw during his time in Europe. Well, Bill found his sketchbooks, along with his induction and discharge papers, a calendar he kept during his time there, a personal letter from General John Pershing thanking him for his service at the end of the war, and cards that he wrote to his wife while he was deployed. The paper in the notebooks, almost a hundred years old, had become brittle and fragile, so Bill and I undertook the task of putting each page on a copy stand and photographing them to preserve the stories and the history they contained. As I went through the task of arranging, lighting, and shooting each page, I began to get a sense of place and time, personality and responsibility, of hopes and dreams and wishes that Cecil had while he was away. The drawings are remarkable, not because they're artistically perfect, but because they capture a moment in time, a feeling, a sense of the place. They evoke feelings and questions because every single drawing tells a story, and the journal entries he kept were just as informative. November 17, 1918. Some of the boys took in Lyon today. I worked all day. I'm going to put in for a pass. I've been issuing bread all day. November 24th. Today is Father's Day. Went to walk to Mermot, nice little town. November 27th. Issued 11,991 pounds, presumably of bread. Perhaps the most telling statement this week is Thursday, November 28th. He doesn't say it, but that was Thanksgiving. His only comment? No turkey today. As I went through all the drawings, I saw a story emerging of a man who made the most of his time in Europe, under what must have been less than pleasant circumstances. 
He drew houses and churches, trains and tents, people and places. He captured the smiles on children's faces, details of his encampments, bridges, animals, industrial processes. At one point, he sketched what appears to be a public urinal marked not for U.S. soldiers. His pay book shows that he was paid, like clockwork, $36.60 every month, standard salary for an enlisted man at the time. Another sketch is of a cart of some kind that resembles a gypsy wagon. Cecil's careful to label it not a hot dog cart. Beside the cart, on the opposite page, is the drawn equivalent of a snapshot of three soldiers sitting on a bench. As I went through these drawings and read his journal entries, a thought struck me. Cecil's sketches capture a moment in time, a snapshot taken long before cameras were common. His diary and journal entries captured moments in time as well, mostly about the daily life that he and his fellow soldiers lived. It's interesting that he took the time to write down what he saw and planned and experienced. Over and over, throughout the pictures and notes, he displays his life in real time for whoever chooses to read the notebooks. And this is when it strikes me. Cecil's drawings and notes and inner thoughts were 1918's answer to Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn. He tells us what was going on, who he was with, what he was doing, how hard work was progressing, baked 6,100 pounds this morning, what was bothering him, had to work with pine wood today, uneven heat so the bread was poor, hope for hardwood tomorrow. His life is laid out there in a story shared with the world. It just goes to show. Every picture, every drawing tells a story, and every person is a rich trove of stories. All you have to do is dig a bit to find them. Okay, I think that's enough for now. Thank you for joining me on this wandering, disconnected episode. I wish you the very best. Thanks for dropping by. Hey, thanks for dropping by. I'm Steve Shepard, the host of the Natural Curiosity Project, where we're committed to the idea that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. In every episode, we explore some topic that piqued our curiosity enough to make us want to share it with you. I hope you enjoy the journey. And if you did, I'd appreciate it if you'd leave a comment over at iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you very much. We'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.